Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Orla Shanahi of VoxGig, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting and attending. In each episode, I sit down for a relaxed fireside chat with people in the public speaking community. My aim is to learn how they've mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And just before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplecast.com, the first and last word in podcasts. My guest today is Mick Collis. Mick has many strings to his bow. He's a keynote speaker, an MC, a rugby commentator, a rugby player, a poet and a published author. He was also the vice captain of the first ever Australian Sudoku team and travelled to India to compete at the World Sudoku Championships. Mick, thank you very much for talking to me today, live from Perth. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for speaking with me. Not at all. I had a great time reading your profile documents, looking at your website, watching some of your talks. So thank you for that. You provided me with a very entertaining couple of hours yesterday. Oh, good. (laughs) So uh, let's get straight into it. You fulfilled a dream that so many people have all over the world to represent their country on the international stage. Tell me how you did it. As a kid, I just wanted to play for Australia. I, I didn't care what it was in. I, obviously, in Australia, a, cricket's a big thing. So in summer, it was always dreaming to you know open the batting for Australia. And then in, in wintertime, I played rugby league and then rugby union. So it was always the dream of being a kangaroo or, or a wallaby and, and playing for Australia. So I, I spent a lot of time pursuing that. But unfortunately, I had a lot of desire, but not enough ability. So the, the dream sort of slowly fizzled out. But then one day I was heading up to Brisbane to watch the Bledisloe Cup, which is a rugby test match between the Wallabies and the All Blacks of New Zealand. And a mate of mine pulled out a book of Sudoku puzzles, which I'd never seen before. And then for some reason, we, we must have just had the right number of beers because we thought, I said to my mate, that if we created a World Sudoku Championships, we could actually pick ourselves in the Australian team. So that's what we were going to do. We were all set. We spent the whole weekend just working out how we were going to do that. And when I got back to Perth, I just, just out of curiosity, I Googled World Sudoku Championships and I was quite devastated to discover there had actually been one. Someone had actually gone to the trouble of, of actually having a World Sudoku Championship. So that was a real um, disappointment because that was the closest that I ever got to actually achieving this dream of playing for Australia. And then I thought to myself, well, look, you know, bugger this, I've come too far and I've worked too hard to just let this one go. So I started surfing around and, and trying to find out how you actually get to compete for your country. And to cut a very long story, I still haven't actually ever played a game of Sudoku at this stage, but to cut a long story short, you had to represent your country at the World Sudoku Championships. You need to be selected and have that selection ratified by your country's member of this thing called the World Puzzle Federation. And I found out that Australia didn't actually have a member of this World Puzzle Federation. So I joined and I, or applied to join, my application was accepted. So I became the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation. My job was to run an Australian championships and pick the Australian team. So I basically ran an Australian championships. I invited myself and three mates. So only four of us turned up and we needed four for the Australian team. So we basically picked ourselves in the Australian team and that got us on the road to India to compete at the World Championships. That is incredible. (laughs) It's not ridiculous, but it was. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you got yourself to that stage where you were on your way to India to represent your country. Yeah. What happened after that? I played a bit of junior representative rugby and, and you always got really good kit when you made a rep team. And I had a mate who I lived with for a long time who made the Wallabies. We were all just so excited. It was all about the kit that you get. So before we went away, we wanted to make sure we had enough gear to last us you know, for, for at least a decade because we knew we'd never get to play for Australia again. So the first job we had to do was to actually get all our uniforms sorted out. So we ended up with five different uniforms. We had a polo shirt and a walk short was the number ones. The number twos was a T-shirt and gym shorts. Oh, the number one, sorry, was the blazer, the Australian blazer, the tie, the shirt and the pants. And then the number fours was the singlet and board shorts. And the number fives was the actual playing kit. So we had a massive wardrobe full of gear. There was a documentary crew from Melbourne decided they'd like to um, to follow us along. That, that was funny. The guy actually rang me up. He's a guy that I'd never met him before. And he's a guy that makes quirky documentaries. And he decided he'd like to do one on, on Sudoku and how big it had become in the world. And he jumped online and was looking around and he found that I was the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation. So he rang me up to say, you know, I'm doing a documentary on Sudoku. Can you tell me about Sudoku's history in Australia and, and how Sudoku's growing in Australia? And I decided, well, look, I've never actually played before. I don't know anything about it. So that, that was a bit of a fizzle. But then when we decided to go, I rang him up and said, look, we can't play, but four of us have, have picked ourselves in the Australian team. We're going across to India to play for Australia. So he thought that was great. So he's come with us. So we basically landed in India. There's four blokes who all played rugby together, so we're a bit um, sort of taller than the average Sudoku player. We've all got matching uniforms. We've got a camera crew following us, and all the puzzlers in India all thought we must have been some sports team because we had this big entourage of people following us around. <laughs> so we started um, basically, yeah, got to India, and then, um, you know, very excited. We had our team bonding session on the night before our first game for Australia, which wasn't the smartest of preparations in hindsight <laughs> because the last thing we needed was a, a few beers before competing. And it meant a lot to us to be playing for Australia. And we had a team meeting at this bonding session. And I'd always wondered what it would be like to be presented with your first ever Wallaby jersey, you know, or your first baggy grain to play for Australia. So we had a, a very nice moment where I called all the team together and I made a very passionate speech about what it means to play for your country and the responsibilities of wearing a nation's colours. And then we presented each other with our Australian playing uniform for the next day. In the next morning, we, we kind of got up and I remember just so vividly reaching into my the cupboard in my hotel room and, and pulling out my Australian playing uniform and, and putting this thing on and thinking, you know, I'm actually about to go and, and play for Australia. And it was a really, as silly as it sounds, it was a really not nice moment for me to think that, you know, this is it. I'm actually, because it was, it's not like there was another Australian team. We were, we were there and, and we were the Australian team. And so the hopes of 23 million people were riding on our shoulders because we were the ones that were there representing Australia. So it was a real dream come true for me. And, and there's a wonderful saying in sport about going from, I'm not sure if it is in Ireland, but in Australia, it's, it's about going from the penthouse to the shithouse. And that was, that was how I felt when I sat down in this room with 89 other competitors and we had our puzzle booklets face down in front of us. And I was so excited to start playing for Australia. And the, the boss of the World Puzzle Federation has said, you may start. And, and I've turned up my puzzle booklet and I've opened up the first page and it just it all went to shit because I, I didn't even recognise this Sudoku puzzle that I was supposed to try and do. I did my first puzzle on the way to India on the plane on the way over. I said to the captain that I can't actually play. So he, he sort of helped me work out what I meant to do. So when I actually saw this derivative of Sudoku that it had all X's and V's and I, I honestly had no idea how to even start it. And there was this mad panic that I thought, God, I'm going to, I'm living this dream of playing for Australia, but I'm going to let Australia down, which was my biggest nightmare. I didn't want to embarrass my country. So luckily there was 12 puzzles 
in the booklet that we had. The first day we had seven rounds of 12 puzzles and, and you had 45 minutes to try and complete as many of those 12 puzzles as you could. And each puzzle was worth a certain number of points. They had to try and complete as many of the 12 puzzles and each round of 45 minutes as you could to score as many points as you could. So I opened this puzzle booklet and I just thought, I'm, I'm actually going to get zero points for Australia. So I flicked through this book and I finally found one that I recognized, like the one that you see in the paper every day, just a simple nine sort of blocks of squares with the numbers in it. And I got stuck into that. And as I said, we had, we had 45 minutes to do 12 puzzles. I finished that puzzle in 41 minutes. But I thought to myself, I've just finished a puzzle for Australia and mm-hmm. I'd scored five points for Australia. And that was a very, very proud moment for me. Wow. Okay. So I'm a little bit reassured to hear that it wasn't your first ever Sudoku game when you were actually at the championship. You had practiced on the plane. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was my second puzzle. I have to ask, uh, just listening to you recounting it all there, and it's such a fantastic story. When you were doing it all, did you have in the back of your mind, one day this will make a great after dinner speech? How deliberate was it all in terms of what you've done with your speaking career since then? I guess we were very naive. So, so like I was brought up, as I said, wanting to play for Australia. And I had a, a mate who I went to school with a mate who ended up playing test cricket for Australia. I lived with a mate who went on to play for the Wallabies. I played Colts with a guy. I mean, Colts is sort of under 20s, I think it is, at a club called Eastwood. And, and I won the this thing called the Brian Palmer Shield, which was the most outstanding Colt. And I was very happy with that. And the guy that was the runner-up that year was a guy called Dick Harry. And Dick Harry went on to play 37 test matches for Australia, and I didn't. Then I, I moved to Perth, and I played second row with a guy when I arrived to Perth. He went on to play for Australia. I met my wife, and she was in the Australian women's water polo team. So I was the only Muppet that had ever played for Australia. We'd, I mean, when I was a kid, if you went out for dinner, and there was one person that had played for Australia at, at dinner, you thought, wow, that was fantastic. I'd go out for dinner, but I was the only one that hadn't played for Australia. <laughs> it was just something that I always wanted to do. And, and so that desire for me was very real. And that was the whole motivation for me was to play for Australia because it was something that I always wanted to do. And there was nothing more than that. And luckily, you know, I emailed, um, so there was myself, uh, a guy called Mark Skippington or Skiffo, and then two brothers, Sandy and Hamish Sutherland. And when I, when I became the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation, I sent an email to Sandy and I said, Sandy, would you be interested in representing Australia in Sudoku and traveling to India for the World Sudoku Championships? And Sandy's emailed me back. And he said, I don't know what Sudoku is, but I'm sure it's nothing I can't learn on the day. I'm in. And I thought, that's great. He's only in if it's with me, him, his brother Hamish and Skiffo. So it was this penny dropping that, you know, I'd always wanted to play for Australia. He was four mates that I played rugby with and we would have all loved to have played for the Wallabies in rugby, but that opportunity didn't come. But, but all of a sudden, here was an opportunity for the four of us to actually go to India as part of an Australian team. So when Sandy sort of said, he'll go if it's those two other blokes, it just all, it became crystal clear that that was what was meant to happen. So we went over there and we, you know, we did our country proud. We competed as hard as we possibly could for Australia. Then we came back and I'd been back, I reckon about three years from the trip. And I had another mate from rugby was the, um, the marketing manager for Engineers Australia. And he saw me at training one night and he just said to me, could I be the guest speaker at their work function. And I'd never, ever spoken before. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, just come along and tell your Sudoku story because I was telling the ladies at work about it and they think it's funny. So I'd never, ever spoken. And I thought, okay. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go and do that. So I put together this, you know, I didn't even know how long an after dinner speech was going to be. So I, I just kind of put down some stuff and I went and uh, it worked out to be about half an hour and I put a little PowerPoint presentation together with some photos of what happened over there. And and I told this story and it went all right. So 
I sort of rang a mate and said, look, I've just done this talk. What do you reckon I should do? So he said, go and speak to this bureau. So I went and spoke to a bureau and it went from there. So if that mate of mine never asked me to speak, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind. I would never even thought about speaking about what we did. It was just one of those trips that we went on because we wanted to go on it. And it was only, as I said, after we came back and, and sort of people started hearing about what we'd done that, that that mate just happened to ask me. And, and, you know, luckily he asked me. He didn't ask one of the other blokes. He asked me. And um, I was dumb enough to say yes when I didn't know how to be a public speaker and it's gone from there. So I'm eternally grateful to that guy that, that he did ask me that night. Yeah, that's incredible. So it was really happy coincidence, serendipity, whatever word you want to put yeah, on it. Yeah, I remember on the way back from Goa, you know, I kind of thought it was an interesting thing that we'd done. And the media, it was funny, the media, because I was doing a bit of stuff on a radio station called 6PR in Perth and, and it, was at the, it must have been the Christmas party and one of the uh, radio producers from one of the, I think it was the breakfast show, just said, you know, what I'm up to. And I said, oh, you know, I'm off the cuff. I just said, look, I'm, I'm heading off to India in a couple of weeks with um, with a couple of mates. We picked ourselves in the Australian Sudoku team, but we can't play Sudoku. He was the one that first kind of thought, hey, that's actually not a bad story. So so he got me on the radio and then became sort of our media manager and, and we ended up on, on TV programs or in the paper. A lot of people in Australia really got behind the fact that there was four blokes with no idea what they were doing just mm-hmm. out there, you know, having a go and doing it for Australia. So, so we got some media attention. I started to think that, you know, maybe there's something in it, but I, I didn't know what was in it. But when we were leaving Goa and I did some radio interviews over there and, and again, the, just the interest that we were generating was quite surprising to me because, as I said, we didn't think that deeply about it. And on the, I remember on the bus leaving the hotel back to the airport, I just thought, well, oh, maybe there might be something in it. So I just, I just wrote a few notes just sort of about, you know, what we'd done. And then when I got home, um, after about a week, I thought, oh, look, I might try and do something with it. So I, I thought I'd, I'd try and write a book. And, I, you know, I'd never written a book before, but I thought, oh, I'll try and write a book. So for over about a three-month period, I I just sort of wrote a chapter a night. The chapters were, were pretty short because I, you know, I didn't know, again, how to write a book, but I just thought I'd do this thing. And then I ended up getting HarperCollins published the book on the trip. And, and so we had a documentary and then we had the book. So I kind of... I sort of knew there was something in it, but I, I didn't even know that there was a public speaking world out there. I've been to the occasional event where there was a speaker, but I didn't know that there was such a, a whole industry about public speaking. So I kind of had the book, which was good, and then we had the documentary, which was handy, and, and a bit of media stuff. So I, I sort of knew there was something in it. But yeah, the whole fact of me coming about to speak was just purely by chance because yeah. I, I didn't ever think that what we'd done was was enough for, to actually be a speaker about. But um yeah. Thankfully, I've been proven wrong and it's been it's been great fun for me. I've, I've had a ball doing it. You've made a career out of speaking. That's fair to say, isn't it? I've got a main job. I work for an advertising company is my main gig, but that was going a little bit bad. So that was sort of dropping off just as the speaking took up. So yeah, so it hasn't been a career, but it's been a real a lifesaver for me because it's been fantastic. And financially, yes, it's been that's been absolutely terrific. But the thing that I like most about it, like I really enjoy the fact that I mean, there's no Cinderella story. I didn't win. A lot of speakers speak about things because they're experts in their field. The only reason I speak is because I'm so bad at Sudoku. I mean, I've been to speakers where I've, or to events where I've heard, a, you know, an Olympian who's won a gold medal. He says, you know, if, if you work hard enough and train hard enough, you can achieve, you know, what I did. And I, I sit there thinking, well, no, I can't. That's bullshit because I trained my ass off for about 15 years. I never got anywhere. So don't stand up telling me that if I work hard enough that I'm going to get something because it's not true. So... I think the the thing that people like about my talk is that it's not about ability, it's about an attitude. And anyone in a room 
could have done what I did because ability just wasn't required. It was just about sort of thinking, look, this sounds like fun. Let's go and do this. So what I've been able to do in, in telling a story about, because the whole, first half of my talk is all about how I failed at, I failed at rugby, I failed at swimming, I failed at surf lifesaving, I tried lawn bowls, I failed at that. So it was just all these failures up until I found Sudoku and then I ended up failing at Sudoku. So it's nice to be able to get up there and, and tell a story with no real upside to it, but people get a real kick out of it. And it's nice to be able to tell a story that that puts a smile on people's face and, and makes people laugh. And then at the yes. end, it's almost, um, you know, I sound like a bit of a wanker, but it's a real, it's a bit of an ego boost because you get all these people coming up and, you know, patting them on the back and saying, yeah, that was fantastic. I loved your story. I can go to work for eight hours and knock off at the end of eight hours and no one says a thing, but I can go and speak <laughs> yes. at a dinner where they feed me and pay me. And then after 30 minutes, I've got all these people wanting their photo with me and telling me, you know, what a good bloke I am. So it's a really, it's, a, it's an addictive thing to to go away and do it. And just some of the people that I've met, because I've been to some really remote and crazy regional places that I would I would never, ever have gone to if I wasn't speaking about how bad I was at Sudoku. And I, I remember there was one night I went and spoke at a, at a function in Bendigo and it was a conference about genetic engineering for, for sheep or cattle or, or something bizarre. And I was talking to this guy. He was the brander of the cows. So he said, with the black cows, they brand them with dry ice because that it kills the pigment so the black hair grows back white. So the, the cow will always have a number on it for the rest of its life. And he said, and then when we have to drill the, the horns out of the cow's head, he said, if I drill and I can feel the drill sort of start to shake, that means I've drilled too far and I'm hitting the cow's skull. So that's when I've got to stop drilling. And I'm thinking that having a beer with this bloke, thinking that I would never, ever have got to speak to this bloke if I wasn't bad at Sudoku. So it's, it's been a real <laughs> yeah. joy for me to go and meet these people in, and speak in these crazy events that have got nothing to do with Sudoku. I, the conferences I speak to are, are just totally unrelated. And, and I just sometimes sit back and just think, wow, I'm, I am incredibly lucky to meet the people that I get to meet. Well, and that's been the real joy of it. As the after the speaking bit is the, is the most enjoyable bit for me where I do get to you know, actually have a yarn for these people. Listening to you, it's the power of the underdog story, really, isn't it, that you're tapping into? Like you said, you're not going up on stage and telling everyone how you did something amazing and wonderful. You're talking about how you, in your own words, failed to do it, though you've yeah. been incredibly successful. So there's a lot of contradictions in there. But yeah, it does show the yeah. power of the story of the underdog. Everybody loves the underdog. And, you know, you see that in sport as well. Yeah. And I, and I think Australians, I'm sure it's similar around the world, but Australians like to think that we own it, that whole underdog you know, against the odds kind of thing. And, and and I think too in Australia, you know, we've always got behind the underdog and we've always liked to think that we're, you know, real larrikins and, and real have-a-go kind of people. And I think that the way society is going is that I think Australians are losing that larrikin kind of edge because everything's become so politically correct now and you've got to kind of watch your P's and Q's and, you know, you can't do anything to offend anyone. And, mm -hmm. and I think when I get up and, and tell my story about four blokes that had no idea what they were doing, but they went across there anyway because it sounded like a good time and, and there's a bit of anti-establishment and it is that larrikin kind of attitude that, that we like. This word larrikin, I don't think that's really widely used here. What does that mean? I, th I think the Irish have kind of got a bit of larrikin about them. It, it's that where you sort of, you go against the establishment and you, you kind of go against the rules and it's kind of, it's the whole ask for forgiveness, not for permission. It's that kind ah, of, yes. you, you just kind of go out and you, and you, you kind of, you're not, you're not hurting anyone, but you're going out there and you're, it's kind of it's a bit. It's a bit cheeky and a bit a bit anti-establishment, oh, okay. and it, and it's sort of Australians like to think that we're these real larrikins, but I think we're losing it. So when when you get a story about people that are that are, you know I'm not look I'm not saying I'm a great larrikin, but but the story 
has got that element and it, and it makes people think that, yeah, you know, Australians, we still are like that because we do take a bit of pride in that in that very um, that mentality of, you know, we, we go against the grain a little bit in Australia and I think oh, okay. people still like to think that we do, that we still have got that in us even though we kind of don't. It's been slowly beaten out of us but every now and then when someone pops up and they, they do do it and, and it reinforces that, that perception that we do have of, of what it means to be an Australian, and I think that people kind of get on board, and they okay. they really do they do embrace that. Because even last night at the dinner, I spoke to the deputy prime minister um, was in the audience, and and he came up afterwards and asked me, could he have a photo with me? Which I thought was was really lovely. And so this is the you know, the acting prime minister because Scott Morrison's over with Donald Trump at the moment. So I've got the and even I actually did a, a talk, and Scott Morrison, the, the prime minister, was at, and he came up and said, could I have a photo? So it's one of these stories that. You know, from the from the top to the bottom, that people just seem to really like the story. Yeah, and you've travelled widely globally with the talk. Have you been to Ireland? No, I never have. But I would oh, love okay. to. I would love because yes. I'm, you know, like a lot of Australians, Irish is is my background. My mother's maiden name is Ireland, and I'm <laughs> if if I was a if she was a man, I, I'm Michael Patrick. So I could have been Michael Patrick Ireland. So <laughs> I would I would love I'd love to get to Ireland. And I think the Irish because I actually think the year before. We went to India. I actually think there was an Irish Sudoku team that went to, I'm not sure where it was before us, but I, I believe that the Irish weren't very good either. So it's a real <laughs> shame that they weren't at the same moment we were at because yeah. I think the Irish and the Australian Sudoku teams, we would have had a crack, a crack in, in your terminology. We, would, we yeah. would have had a great time together. Oh, we're trading terminology now. Okay, so you've got it. <laughs> so I've got Larry, and you've got the crack. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you said that you were new to public speaking, but you had worked before that, if I'm right, as a rugby commentator. Yeah, yes. So there would be a certain amount of overlap. I mean, they both involve speaking on a public platform. So did the commentating help you when you did come to public speaking? It may have done. And so, we, yeah, with the speaking... Because yes, I've I've done a bit of M. So yes, so so rugby was my background, and and luckily when I moved to Perth, from so I grew up in Sydney, and I moved to Perth to study, and then I ended up sort of met my wife, and she's a Perth girl, so I've sort of kept hanging around her, and until she tells me otherwise, but. I did the commentary when I got over here because not many people knew about rugby in WA. It's Aussie Rules is the main sport over here. And then I started doing some some MC work for one of the, the main rugby teams, the Western Force, that, that were playing here. So I was doing some MC work, a bit of radio work. And I, I do some poetry, so I was doing some – so I, I had had a little bit of experience about being in, in front of people, but I'd never spoken before in terms of doing a – like I'd been a link man, so I'd introduced the speaker, but I'd never been the speaker. But I, I, I suppose – that fact of, yeah, sort of being, I guess, on stage and, and speaking, uh, I probably it did give me a, a bit of an advantage in terms of the environment was familiar, but in terms of actually how to put together a, a keynote speech, I had no idea and that was purely because I, I lived the story and I did the story and I'd written the book and it was all true, all I really had to do was just summarise the book, I suppose, in, and make it a roughly 30-minute talk. Mm-hmm. And again, I said, I didn't even know how long it was meant to be, but by chance it turned out to be 30 minutes, which is sort of what most people want. So I think there was definitely definitely some overlap, but the whole the keynote was, was a sort of a, a whole new, a new thing to me, mm-hmm. completely new to me. In terms of delivery, though, and diction and being clearly understandable to the listener, it would strike me that there's a bit of overlap there. Would that be correct? Yeah, probably. I mean, I always, I always get told that I talk too fast, which I know I do, and I do constantly try to slow down, but I sometimes get a bit excited and, um, and I do talk a bit fast. So, look, I think, yeah, there's definitely overlap and, and sort of knowing you've got to be 
But it's funny because I don't think about those things that you talk about, you know, about the sort of the diction and I never consciously think about it. It's just kind of, okay. I, I kind of just go up there and I, and I tell my story how I tell the story. The only thought I have is slow down. Yes. But, but I don't actually think about anything else. So it's, it's kind of, um, I guess there's all the subconscious stuff that's just in there that, that I do without thinking about it, but I don't actually yeah, consciously think about what I'm supposed to do or how to do it, right. which is quite bizarre. But I guess that's, it kind of fits. You know, the whole story is about that flying by the seat of your pants kind of thing about diving into the unknown and not really giving it a second thought. So I guess the way I tell the story is probably a, a good reflection of the story itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand what you're saying. You do do just one talk, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've, got, <laughs> I've got one story. <laughs> It's just fantastic the way you've made, call it a career or a sideline or whatever. Do you plan to keep doing that, just giving the one talk? And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it's great. Keep doing it. Look, the greatest advice I've ever been given is by, so there's a, there's a broadcaster and a former Wallaby uh, coach by the name of Alan Jones. And he told Peter Fitzsimons, who was a former Wallaby and a very well-known speaker and, and author. And so Alan Jones told Peter Fitzsimons, told me, he said, don't change your material change your audience. And that was the best bit of advice that I have ever been given because I have got one story and by chance it's turned out it's not a bad one. So there are a lot of people around the place that haven't heard it. So I'm living by that and I will milk this thing for as long as I can. People have said, you know what, you know, what's your next story? And I think, well, I fell into this one. It's not one that I set out to have and I'm not smart enough to actually, like I get people that come up to me after they've heard my story and they go, oh, is that true or did you make that up? And, and I think I'm not, I say, look, you can't make that shit up. It's too bizarre to, to make up and I'm not smart enough to make it up. So people have said, what's your next one? I said, well, I don't have another one because I fell into that. And even I'm with a bureau um, that, that books me for some stuff and they've even they're a bit hesitant for me to, to have another one because they said this one is, again, I don't want to sound like a wanker, but they said this story is such a good story that if I tell that and then someone books me for another one, they said it's, it's not going to be as good, so they're going to be a little bit disappointed. And I think I'd be disappointed if I didn't do one as well. So, so I will milk this one story for as long as I can. Obviously, I do know that it's, it's got a shelf life and it will run out because eventually, you know, I, look, I'll never tell it to everyone, but the people that, that book me for talks, they've got a limited number of clients, so they'll run out. But because I never, I never set out, I didn't do the thing to talk about it, for me, if I thought, when I first started doing it, I thought, if I got a year out of this, that'd be fantastic. And I think this is year number five. So for me, every single talk that I do is a bonus. I've been grateful for every single one that I do. Every one that I get from here on in is a bonus. And I enjoy every one that I do for the fact that it might be my last one. So mm. I'm extremely grateful for, for every single one that I've done. But I will run this thing into the ground for as long as I can possibly do it, okay. purely because I do enjoy doing it and, you know, and, and the money... I, you know, I'm not going to knock that back either, but but I do enjoy it and just, I'm grateful. So I, I will do it for as long as I can. Mick, I absolutely love your honesty and how direct you are. You're literally going to keep doing that until you can't do it anymore. And that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You've kind of made a virtue of being self-effacing, I think, you know, and you've worked that into your talk, the underdog, oh, I failed at this, I failed at that. But at the same time, the evidence is that you have just created something that so many public speakers or aspiring public speakers would love to emulate. So there's lots of food for thought, I think, in your story. It's funny, you know, like I guess because I was brought up with people that were better than me, 
that was my life. There was that everything I did, there were people better than me. So, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm by no means the greatest public speaker. There, there are so many speakers better than me. So that people always say that I do sort of, I, I underplay my ability, but, but I fell into a very good story. And, you know, and yes, I actually, I, I tell it well because it's my story and, and people tell me that I tell it well and a good, I get a good response. But if you said to all your audience, if you said, you know, Name me a hundred speakers. I, I wouldn't come into it because no one still no one knows no one knows who I am. Like I still turn up to talks and people have got no idea. I walk in there and no one's got any idea who I am. No one knows who I am. When they introduce me, that people have got no idea who I am. And it's only once I tell my story. So, so I I am very aware that I am not the best by a long shot. So I think for me to to wander around and strut around like a peacock, thinking that that I'm very good. It's just not true. So I find it very easy for me to sit in that space where it is that I don't put myself down, but I, I certainly don't pump my own tires up because I'm I'm not good. That's just the fact. It's okay. kind of, and I'm I'm, I'm happy with that because I know I'm, I'm I'm not good. And you know, luckily that attitude kind of fits my talk because my talk. There's no highlights, no Cinderella story in my talk. There's no. I came last at the World Championships. There were 89 people, and I comfortably came 89th. But that's um <laughs> that's where I sit. I hope you do make it to Ireland. I think you're saying you don't know how long this will last. I think, it, like you're saying, it's a different audience every time. So I think uh, just from where I'm sitting, it could go on for a very long time. Well, I hope so. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I spoke at a, I went up to the Hong Kong Sevens, which I'd always wanted to go to, which was fantastic. And I spoke at the Carbine Club uh, before the Sevens. And there was a guy called Andy Nichols, who was a Scottish halfback, and he um, emceed a function I did the, the night before and then and he was at my table and was the MC at the Carbine Club and he said he'd love to get me across when the Wallabies are playing Scotland to speak at some functions before that. And like for me, like I'm a sports fan and that that for me, for me to say so to me to go and speak at the Hong Kong Sevens was terrific. If I could get to go and speak at a, a rugby function in Scotland, you know, at, at Murrayfield or or at Lansdowne Road before a Wallaby test, that for me would just be an absolute highlight. So I'm, I, I keep annoying Andy Nichols on Twitter and, and I, I'm going to email him after the World Cup just to keep reminding him that, you know, I'd, I'd love to get over there because because I know that I've been incredibly lucky that I've, as I said, I've, I've just stumbled into this story that that people can relate to and, and enjoy. And if if that, me being not good at Sudoku, can get me to, to Murrayfield or, or Lansdowne Road or Twickenham, I would be so happy and so grateful for that opportunity. And if they said to me, you know, what would it cost? I couldn't care less. You know, if you can get me over there, I would just love to get over there, tell my story and have some Guinness with some people. That for me, like that whole that whole experience of of being at an event and and being lucky enough to speak at an event so you're not it's kind of I always liken it to be being on the other side of. The, I, I like liken it to being on the other side of the fence. So for so long I was a spectator at all these things, and and I was on the other side of the fence. But me speaking about Sudoku has put me, you know, on the other side of the fence where I'm actually I'm on the same side as these great internationals that have done what I wanted to do. And this thing that I've got that's put me on their side of the fence for me it's such a thrill, 
and to call these people friends that I've looked up to for so long. Like, I'll you know, keep digressing, but I've become very good mates with John Eels, who was one of Australia's greatest ever rugby captains through Sudoku, and the same thing with Phil Kearns. And I, I did a talk at a – and there was a lady called Anna Mears, who was Australia's most decorated um, Olympic cyclist. And and after I spoke, she came up to me and said, could she get her photo with me? And I said, <laughs> God, can I, can I get my photo with you? And she's become a really good friend of mine because I've, I've sort of – I've by being no good, I've elevated myself from just the average punter sort of and I'm on their side of the fence. So yes. if I could get over there to standing with Andy Nichol at some thing at, you know, Murrayfield, it would be such a thrill for me to do that. So I'm always open for any opportunity to go and do something like that because uh, okay. it, it would mean so much to me to be in that environment just because I can't play Sudoku. It's one of those pinch yourself moments that I that I get a lot because I think, God, how lucky am I that I'm no good at something that gives me these great opportunities. But that was a very long-winded rant sort of to answer <laughs> that little question. And I apologize for that rant, but I do get excited about it. That is okay. It's Yeah, your passion and your enthusiasm are infectious. I can feel it all the way across the world. <laughs> um, we've come to the end of our time, Mick. Thanks so much for making time for me. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Enjoy the next six weeks. Thank you, Ola. I know. So talk to me about that. How are the Irish going to go? Oh. <laughs> Uh, Mick, I was trying to hide this all along, but I have never watched a rugby game in my life. Oh, oh, uh, (laughs) well, I hope you get on board because I think Ireland, they're a real smoky this year and I would love Ireland to make the final because I don't think Australia will, but we might. But if Ireland gets there, I think Ireland's everyone's second favourite team. (laughs) So if, if your own country's not playing and Ireland is, honestly... Everyone would be behind Ireland. Yeah, it's a bit of the underdog thing. Absolutely. And they okay. would, you know, I mean, because Ireland beat the All Blacks, might have been even during the year, they've got good form against them. So if it, if it becomes an Ireland All Blacks grand, uh, grand final of the World Cup, it would be magnificent. And I'm, yeah. I'm actually heading across, um, you know, one of these great things I've been asked to go and speak at a News Corp function before the, the night of the final. Oh. I haven't even asked about money. They said, could you come? And I said, yes. So I don't know where I'm, they're getting me over there. I don't know where I'm staying. I don't know if I'm being paid or not. I don't care. I'm going across and they're going to try and get me a ticket to the final. So so I'm going and I would love to watch. It would be fantastic if it was Ireland and Australia. That would be my fingers crossed moment. But if, but if yeah. it's not, I really hope Ireland do very well. Okay. Thank you so much. And best of luck to Australia as well. It's going to be a fun Thank six you, weeks. Thank you so much, Thank you very much. Best of luck with all your endeavours. I'm sorry if I'm rattled on a little bit long, but um, it was really nice That's talking to you. Okay. <laughs> you too. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but it is a skill like any other and one you too can learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe to the newsletter. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review. That helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach out to us on Twitter at voxgig, V-O-X-G-I-G. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let us know and we'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible.